Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Well, for the first time after a podcast, I'm actually, I've had a lot of people predict optimism for the world. A lot of people predict pessimism for the world. But this podcast did make me nervous. And it's with General Robert Spaulding. He's the author of a book just out called War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. And previously, he's been China strategist for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's been on the National Security Council. He's worked in the White House. And I played devil's advocate throughout, and he laid out kind of this historical thing that's been going on uh, about how the way in which China views war and how it's different from U.S. We talk about everything from the Ukraine war to some of the ideas around COVID to trade wars to psychological warfare to what's going on in China itself, the way they treat their people and why. He answered all my questions and I'll let you guys judge for yourselves. General Spaulding, thanks for coming on the podcast about a topic very important to not only us, but the entire world right now, particularly in this current state of war. The subtitle of your book, War Without Rules, is China's Playbook for Global Domination. And you're literally talking about the actual playbook that was written in 1997 by two Chinese colonels, which I had no idea about until I read your book. It's called Unrestricted Warfare. Well, yeah, I mean, I read it in 1999 and I thought it was, you know, insane. You know, part of it talks about using earthquakes for weapons. So um, I thought it was uh, not really relevant. But, you know, as I the more I learned about the Chinese Communist Party, the more I uh, read it again later after, you know, 2014, I think the, the next time I read it. You know, after, you know, Russia moves into Crimea and, you know, um, looking back now, you, you really see, you know, what they were trying to portray. But in 1999, I, I, I couldn't see it. You just mentioned the, you know, using earthquakes for warfare. And while it does come across as a joke or something not, not to be taken seriously, China has done probably more than any other country in terms of figuring out how to manipulate their weather, supposedly for good purposes, like creating rain in order to get a harvest and things like that. And again, I didn't even think about talking about this, but what is the state of them being able to control weather? 
Well, I know that they um, they do a lot of seeding in the clouds, and of course, um, they planted a lot of trees to try to slow the spread of the desert um, in China. Um, of course, you see the 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 uh, Three Gorges Dam, which you know put a lot of um, you know communities underwater. So they've done a lot to really harness um, you know the the you know the environment around them for things they need. But I mean, then that's offset by you know, the, the, the terrible pollution they spew into the air and the land and the water. And I think that's the thing that really shocked me when I lived there um, back from 2002 to 2004 is just how polluted the place was. So polluted that my hair was falling out. I had, you know, spots on my skin that I thought, you know, I was getting prematurely old. And then I came home and after a year it was gone. So um, that's one of the things you learn about China and then it's not just the environment, but it's the food. You know, you have to be very careful. Um, they use like the styrofoam containers that you get in your takeout in. Um, that gets re reused, which you're not supposed to do. Um, and so there's contaminants in nearly everything. And that's why, you know, when you see um, the PLN Navy going to Australia and then coming, you know, back to the ship, you know, with armfuls of of infant milk, you know, infant powdered milk. Why are why are the PLA Navy sailors bringing all this? In? Well, because they don't trust, um, because they had infant milk in China being with melamine being put in as a to up the protein content, but in actually actuality it was poison. So they were poisoning babies, you know, so somebody could make a profit. And that's one of the things that you run into in China is this idea that. Deng Xiaoping's idea of opening up the economy, there was no morality kind of to restrain the, you know, the animal instincts of capitalism. So people will just do whatever they can to make a buck. And, and that's where we get, you know, the, I mean, it goes all the way to the extent of organ harvesting, you know, because it's, it, you can make them, you can make money off of it. Yeah. Robin, you were telling me actually about when you lived in China and you heard about the melanine and the, um, yeah. And the poisoning yeah. of that. So the company that my late husband worked for, they warned us, you know, not to even drink the milk because the melanin was in the milk as well. So we knew it was in the infant milk and just the regular milk that we would drink. And also that it's they crazy. would dye, they would dye um, pork yeah. meat so when red we were th for the Muslims. Right. So when we were there, that came out is that they would, yeah, they were selling the the pork to the Muslim community. They would just dye it red and sell it to them as beef. So, so General Spalding, like before we even talk about how their war against America, you know, and, and we'll talk about what I mean by war and what you mean by war, it almost is like they're at, a, at war against their own people as well. Well, it, it is um, very much a, um, the only word that I can use is th there's a lack of morality because, you know, in, in many cases, the ends justify the means, whatever it takes, you know, whatever it takes to, and you know, what the Chinese Communist Party portrays is, you know, to get out of this or to get retribution for this century of humiliation, which includes building up the productivity, you know, restoring China's rightful place in the world. You know, they are willing to sacri make sacrifices. And when I say make sacrifices, make their population sacrifice to achieve those aims. And, you know, I guess the idea is that maybe at some point the, those, they'll clean those things up. But in the meantime, you know, if, peop, if a few people die along the way, and, and not just, you know, Chinese people, but other people, one of the other issues is, hey, we're using pharmaceutical factories to ship fentanyl around, not just America, but around the world. 
it, it, it's what it, it's profitability. Um, it, it's almost like, you know, we went through this in, in the U S too. We went through this in the, in, in the West, you know, you had to have this restraint of, of commerce because people would just do the most terrible things. So they would pollute the environment. They would exploit workers. You know, we had all of these things that we've, that you've had to go through these worker movements and, um, and, and all of these different movements to basically stop, you know, capitalism that goes kind of to its logical conclusion. The logical conclusion is money is what drives the world. And so you have to restrain it. Um, we have a, a system that enables you to create rules and laws that, that restrain that, but they don't. And really until it becomes something that threatens the part, political um, power of the Chinese Communist Party, they won't restrain it because, in essence, it, the, the ends justify the means. So why is this? What has, I mean, and again, we're not talking about the Chinese person or the average person who comes from China, but we're talking about the Chinese government. Like, why do they take this view that people are dispensable in, or, in order to get to this higher cause, which is presumably... What, what is their goal? Like their goal can't just be, let's defeat the U S like, what is their overall goal? Where do they see themselves in 2049? You, you bring up that date a lot in the book. Cause it's a hundred year anniversary after communism took over in China. Well, I mean, Xi Jinping isn't, is a Marxist Leninist. He believes in the ideology of Marxist Leninism and he sees socialism as their, as the, um, as the type system that the Chinese um, people need, and that the only ones that can deliver that is the Chinese Communist Party. And so what they want is they want the party to remain in power because that is what is going to restore China to, you know, its past glory. And so, you know, it's, it's not any more complicated than that. They really believe in these things. And, you know, they, they believe that, you know, it's actually better for the Chinese people this way, you know, even to the extent you, you hear these arguments at the UN where the China talks about human rights, right? So China says that, you know, individual liberty actually is, uh, is below this idea of providing, of the, of the state providing for the safety and security of the population. And so you give up your individual rights and you give them up because the state then in turn marshals the elements of national power to provide for you. And, um, and if you are sacrificed in that process, well, that's, the, that's for the good of the overall society. That is not far from Confucianism, which was also a very top-down um, system. But, you know, when you, when you look at the, the link between, you know, ancient China, Confucianism, Taoism, and all these kind of uh, ideologies and, and, and certainly the imperialism that went on for centuries and centuries, for thousands of years, you know, in essence, all of that was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. So, but the Chinese Communist Party do have elements of this idea that the collective is more important than the individual, and therefore, any any damage you know on an individual basis is something that's acceptable as you're you know creating a better world for the collective. And so, um, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, that's their message. But in reality, it's even you know 
a little bit more sinister than that because the party really only cares about themselves. And their, you know, the leadership of the party is really what's paramount. And so not only do they care about the collective, but they care about the collective insofar as it enables the party elite to, to, to maintain their hold on power. And so it's interesting you bring up Confucianism and, and these other older Chinese philosophies. In the book, you start off very philosophically that warfare, even dating from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, you contrast that with Clausewitz's On War, which is sort of like the East, the Eastern philosophy of war from hundreds or thousands of years ago to the Western philosophy of war from the past several hundred years, where the Eastern one is that war is everything. So, so you might even be at war in many ways other than military or, or war, you know, win the war before you even start fighting is kind of the Sun Tzu approach. Whereas Clausewitz sort of separates politics from war, like have diplomacy first and only as a last result, get into the strategy of war. Whereas the, the Chinese or Eastern version is, is much more holistic. Everything is war. And this becomes a theme throughout the book. So what are these types of war uh, other than military? Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, to a uh, corollary to what you're saying is that war never ends. It's continuous. You're continuously at war uh, with the other. And, 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 you know, so when you think about um, Simon Sinek has this idea of finite and infinite games, a finite game has a beginning and an end. It's kind of like, as you mentioned, this idea in the West that there's periods of peace and then you have periods of war and you're alternating between periods of peace and periods of war, where in China it's just war and it's war against the others. And, um, and so you are always trying to achieve an advantage vis-a-vis -vis the others. You don't want to allow them to have power over you, and therefore you're always in, in, in this constant struggle with them to ensure that that doesn't happen. And in the case of the Chinese Communist Party, this idea of the century of humiliation is how do they get you know, from underneath the West and be on top of the West because that's the rightful place uh, of China. War, you know, as I was always taught, was not the natural state of the world. Peace is is a natural state, and then you have some kind of issue that comes up on a geopolitical basis that you want to achieve an outcome that favors your own national national interests, and therefore, you know that's where Clausewitz comes in and says war is politics by other means. In other words, you've exhausted all of the uh, you know I, your ideas in terms of getting a geopolitical outcome that favors your interests, and now you must use military force to achieve that. You know, when, when war is continuous, then there is, a, there is a number of tools that always are available, but probably the worst to use is the military because the military actually creates the risk that you could lose everything. And you, you go, even going back into like the Three Kingdoms period and, and reading Sun Tzu, so ancient China, war was always thought of as the, you know, physical conflict was thought of as a last resort. Sun Tzu says the, the acme of a general is to win without fighting. And so, you know, when you look at the, the how Mao took over China for the Chinese Communist Party, he, he incorporated a lot of those elements in the way he thought about it. So people's war was this idea of using, rather than, you know, having war be, you know, using force, to achieve a political outcome, he mobilized politically the population 
people's war to get them to lose faith and confidence in the Nationalist Party, and therefore that's how he took over China. So the very end was was conflict, but by then it had already been decided because he already had the majority of the population behind him. And I think that's the this idea. It's not only um, cont- war is continuous, it's primarily political and, and should stay political. You know, and you, and again, you mentioned these many different types of war where they try to gradually weaken their enemies, particularly the U.S. And we, you mentioned an idea in your book, and recently, we, we before I read your book, we heard about this. One of the, we were talking to the um, district attorney of a major county in the U.S. that deals with a lot of drug-related problems where they, they have cartels that, that there's a lot of cartel deaths and uh, drugs coming into the U.S. relating to Mexican cartels. And I was saying, well, where are they getting all this fentanyl? He said, it's all fentanyl now. Like it's not cocaine or anything like that. It's all fentanyl. And I said, well, where are they? Are they making the fentanyl? What are they getting? And he says, no. And I didn't know whether to believe him until I read your book, but he said, the Chinese basically give them fentanyl for free. So they have a hundred percent margin when they bring it to the U S and sell it. And the Chinese aim, and this, he's heard this directly from the cartels. Otherwise he wouldn't be saying this to me. Uh, he says that the Chinese aim is to weaken the U.S. by flooding the Mexican cartels with this free fentanyl that they make, and then they bring it in here and sell it, and there's all these overdoses. And he was quoting the numbers in his county alone. But what's up with that, and why don't we even, why doesn't our federal government deal with even that yeah, issue? Yeah, well, I mean, so that there's layers to this. So let me, let me kind of take it back to, you know, this idea of unrestrained capitalism. So um, when I was in Shanghai living there, um, I had a friend of mine that said, hey, um, I have a friend that wants to um, import sunglasses into the U.S. and he needs some help. And I, I spoke Chinese, so I said I offered to, you know, to, to basically translate for him. So we went and we had all of these uh, uh, sunglass factory owners come and visit and they had all these different uh, sunglasses types. And... They were selling these sunglasses for $10 a pair down on, I think, in New Mexico on the, on the Mexican border in, in these uh, small convenience stores. And I could not believe that, they, that the, the, the factory owners were selling these sunglasses to these people for $0.20 cents a pair. So from $0.20 cents a pair to $10 that they were getting for retail in the U.S. Think of the margin they're making. And so... You think, okay, that why are they able to to make them for twenty cents a pair? Well, the government was providing them free electricity. You know, everything was subsidized. So, I think there is an element of truth that China subsidizes fentanyl production, but somebody's making a profit somewhere. Not just the cartels. There's there's a factory owner in China that's making money. Now, he's got. 10, and this is the same thing with the with the sunglass owners, there's 10 factories pumping out fentanyl. So you can't, you, the, the margins aren't going to be high. The idea though, is you sell a lot of it and, and, and that's what's going on. And so the, yeah, I, I think, you know, at the end point, they're making high margins, but back in China, somebody's still making money. And the reason they're making money is probably the factory power is getting provided by um, the, the government are subsidized by the government. A lot of the materials that are going into it um, are subsidized by the government. And that is because they want to keep people employed. If they keep them employed, they're happy. So, so it is this unrestrained capitalism. And so, yes, the Chinese Communist Party benefits from the killing of Americans in, uh, with fentanyl. 
but also people are making money. So it's when you put these two things together, the government can benefit and I can make money is is nirvana for the for for the Chinese system and the Chinese Communist Party. And so and then when we can get the triads um, and the cartels, as you mentioned, to also benefit from it, then the then the Chinese have incentivized that ecosystem to do things that are in their, their own interest. And so they can then put pressure on the triads and the cartels to to work with them. So it's a very um it's a way to get the world and if you think about it from the Western viewpoint at the end of World War II, you know, when we um, had the the total productive capacity of the world was almost entirely in the U.S. and we had the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and we rebuilt Japan and Korea. In in many ways, we were doing the same thing. We we're using the productive capacity to bring principles and values into those different areas. So liberal democratic values. In the same way, the Chinese are using these economic relationships to push their their interests into our system. One of them is to re- weaken the, the social fabric of the United States, because as you weaken the social fabric, respect for institutions begins to dissolve. And as you dissolve respect for institutions in the West, then you're looking for something else that that to replace that. And that's how you get, you know, authoritarianism, authoritarianism that begins to begins to rise because you're looking for safety and security. And that's, that's how you get um, authoritarianism. And that's why they're doing that. But it's not purely just that it benefits the communist party in terms of an erosion of social fabric in the West. It's also somebody's making money along the way. And that's the, that's the real, what I found, you know, what I come to believe that is a real beauty and I don't say beauty and that's a good thing in a moral sense, but beauty in terms of if if I was a, just as a thinking as a pure strategist, this is a very beautiful uh, strategy because it, it or, or, you know, way of doing things because it aligns your own self-interest with the interests of the states and if the state. And if you can do that, if you, you as a leader or you as an organization can align the individual interests with your interests, then people start to do things for their own good that benefit the goals that you're trying to achieve. And so, you know, in, in a re- really weird way, you know, people dying in America is strengthening the Chinese Communist Party. And it's also making the people that are in that system look to the Chinese Communist Party because they are being they are they are be, being made wealthy through that system. And and, you know, you you mentioned climate change earlier, which is obviously a huge economic issue in, in China. China's despite what people might think, China is the, the biggest, you know, pollutant of, of carbon emissions and, and so on. Why doesn't you you mentioned in the book, for instance, nobody mentions China in the climate change debate. Greta Thunberg doesn't mention China. This is hugely important for everybody in the world. Why is China allowed to continue doing, you know, having the pollution that they have? And nobody mentions it. Like, why do they target the U.S., which has been going down? Well, I mean, emissions? it's right. It's it's the same. It's the same uh, issue with regard to that we just talked about, and that is, in many ways, the people that are supporting Greta Thunberg and the environmentalist uh, issue are the corporations, and the corporations, you know, have for the most part taken the nasty, dirty, polluting parts of their business. And they've moved them to China. And the Chinese Communist Party 
is, you know, in essence, holding the productivity of the world captive. So if you're to, you know, essentially begin to criticize the Chinese, you're criticizing where your productive capacity is. Also, if you want to sell into China and you criticize the Chinese, then you're not going to be able to sell into China. So by tying their economic interests with the elites of the West, you know, they can basically shield themselves from any criticism. And yet, you know, the, the West will still try to, they, we understand, you know, as I said, we went through this in the West, this idea of pollution is, is, a, is, a, is a net bad. Um, so that's not going to go away in terms of a, an, an activism, if you will. But in order to support activism, you need money, you need donations. Those donations come from, you know, uh, corporations and other organizations and other wealthy who have their fortunes tied to China. And so in many ways, when you start to criticize the Chinese, you create the problem that you may be losing, you know, the source of your uh, donations. And so, you know, this is, it's all wrapped in this idea of financial relationships that lead to outcomes that are uh, that are in the Chinese behavior. They have a, they have, if you look at the major donors of think tanks, the major donors of environmental institutions, the major donors of universities, it's all the same people. And all of these people have gotten very, very wealthy over the last 30 years through their relationships with China. So when you say, hey, why are people not criticizing, you know, these different things? Well, the people that would be getting money to do the activism basically will be cutting their own throats if they start to complain about China. So everything is okay as long as you don't tie your activism to China. As soon as you do, then you can see your donations start to fall off and therefore your ability to, to be active. So I think, you know, if you think about it from from the point of view of the activists, well, you know, that, you know, yes, China's bad, but if I say something about that, then they'll cut off my funding, in which case I won't be able to do my activism. And so I think there's this, um, you know, tacit or implicit realization that that's just not something that I can go after. And and and, and so it's well, it's not like, you know, the Chinese have to really work very hard to keep this thing, you know, to keep that, you know, criticism away from them because they've plugged themselves in, if you will, into the source of the funding for all the activism for just about any cause that you can think of in the world. So like, what's an example? It's like, let's, let's take climate change. What's an example where funding might cut off, be cut off for an activist if there's criticism of China's climate change? Like who, who is the, who is in the middle there funding the activists who also do, does business with China? Let's give a good example. What company would be doing business with China, but would also be associated with um, wanting to have with what we call um, environment or social um, investing, so ESG. So um, Nike maybe is a good example. Nike supports this idea of climate change and, and the need for you know um, reducing uh, greenhouse gases. Nike also believes in in social justice and in, in, in promoting uh, human rights, but Nike has shoes that are made in Xinjiang by slave labor, so Uyghurs, 
And, um, and those factories oftentimes are polluting the environment. And what did the Nike CEO say? He says, we're a brand of China for China. Um, and so that's, you know, I think a, a very good example of a, of a, um, a brand that has t- tied itself to environmental and social causes quite, you know, um, explicitly, but at the same time is unwilling to go after the Chinese Communist Party or China for doing the exact things that they claim that they are supporting. A, a very famous person that would be um, very tightly, uh, very tightly uh, aligned with Nike is LeBron James. So here's a very famous person or, or celebrity in the West. So here's a company, here's a celebrity, both supporting, I would say, um, you know, environmental and social causes, except when it applies to China. So, so for instance, if LeBron James was to say something, you know, anti, like he was to call China on the, the Uyghur situation, what would be the ramifications you think? Well, I mean, that's what happened with the um, with uh, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets. They pulled everything off the shelves in China. They canceled all the NBA games. There was not a single, you know, in, in NBA, you know, fan paraphernalia available, you know, once um, he had he had done that tweet, and they did not get the response out of the NBA they wanted, which is they wanted him fired and they wanted an apology. And Adam Silver, the the NBA commissioner, said we're not going to apologize. It's, it's a free country. To to his credit, now LeBron James in that very same scenario said that Daryl Morey didn't know what he was talking about and he shouldn't be saying anything. He tweeted about you know Hong Kong. So um, LeBron James has clearly come out and said we should not talk about China. And and the reason is is because Le- LeBron James had a huge Nike contract. And that was part of the part of the the, um, the 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 paraphernalia that was pulled off the shelves, you know, in, in this uh, in this hubbub. So it, it is about you know your ability to market things into China as much as it is the the financial resources coming out of China to invest in companies. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So 
Listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. For instance, let's take Apple as a basic example. iPhones are made in factories in China where the conditions are supposedly so horrific that they have nets to prevent people from committing suicide. And so we all know this is going on, but at the same time, People in the U.S. say, okay, let's just turn the other way. Else an iPhone is going to be $10,000 instead of $800. Like, we don't want the cost of our iPhones to go up. But it's symbiotic. It's not like a warlike situation. The U.S. is complicit and the Chinese are complicit. And they're kind of in this weird, like you say, immoral way, they're working together on this. They're not at war with each other, even though it's a very immoral kind of scenario that develops just to save money or to make money. Well, but I mean, who benefits? You know, the who, the be, the benefit is to the shareholders of Apple, the um, the employees of Apple that are in the U.S. But you know, there used to be um, factories in the U.S. where people could go and work, and I think there's this general belief that nobody wants to work in a factory in the United States, and that's just not true. And in fact, a lot of our history is you know people coming into the U.S. looking for this type of blue collar work. And then having families and raising those families, and then you know their 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 kids uh, grow, grow up and, and enter the white collar workforce, and so you know all of that blue collar capability in a lot of sense went away as we moved productivity to China. So in the Chinese sense, 
they have enabled this whole uh, blue collar class of people to have jobs to to feel a part of the society and in the united states we've we've removed it and I think there's this general belief that it's an overall good, but in reality, I think when you look at the social fabric of the U.S. in those 30 years since um, China entered the WTO, I, I don't think we f- feel that we're in a better place. I think we're actually, um, if you if you talk to people today, they think we're going in the wrong direction. And I think part of that can be attributed to the fact that we don't build stuff here. And there are people that actually favor that work over, you know, say, working in an office. And 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 we've just devalued that as a as a society. And furthermore, if you have people that are coming into the country, it's very hard for them to find jobs if they're not a white collar worker. And typically, if you have a white collar worker that's coming into the United States, they haven't come from an area of lower economic capability so that when they come in, a lot of times they don't bring in the value that, hey, I want to be in America because I want the opportunity to give my kids a better life than me which is what has typically been the case in the United States. And so you have people that typically associate with the upper class of the countries that they come from, and they're not embracing what is America. And that is this kind of regenerative capability of the American you know, idea to bring people in that are trying to create a better life for themselves and their kids. And by bringing everybody in, that's kind of at a higher level, and then leaving all of that blue collar working capability away, I think it's been a very problematic thing for the United States in terms of revitalizing what it means to be an American and why this country is so great. No, I I, I agree. But, I, I, you know, and I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, almost literally, but part of the argument for America is that it's made cheaper in China or other third world countries. Like if you, again, if you made an iPhone here, even by blue collar workers in a factory here, it would be much more expensive to buy a Nike shoe. I'm not defending the practices. I'm just saying this is this is kind of the argument is that if you bring manufacturing fully back here, every it would be so much inflation, it would be ridiculous. Right. And people go to um, West Virginia communities and they see that there that you know that there's no uh, place to get jobs so or any other rural, you know, um place where they used to work in factories. And so I think there's a there's a fundamental belief that, you know, that iPhone that costs $1,000, by the way, the margin on those phones are insane. And that's why Apple has, you know, over $200 billion in cash. Um, so to say that you couldn't make an iPhone in the United States, um, the the processes that that create the boards, for example. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, labor in the final assembly of the iPhones, but there's a lot of thing that of, of that that's automated. And I think for a lot of for a lot of reasons, the reasons that they haven't for, further automated is because you can get there is a lot of labor in China. So I don't necessarily buy that you would you know, have you, the the price of those products would be 10 times. In fact, I've talked to people that manufacture their own microelectronics in the United States uh, using automation. I've been there. There's not a lot of people, you know, associated with it. Uh, It is highly automated. And they say that not only can they make it at the same cost that you can make it in China, they also get to protect their intellectual property in the process. So, you know, there there is a lot of mythology and when you start to dig down into the supply chain and see why China is the way it is, I'll give you another another example. Just in microelectronics, because that's you know iPhone is a microelectronic product. The components, the subcomponents that go into the boards, the PCBs that make up the phone, 
Uh, a lot of them come from the United States. We're talking about chips and, 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 and other high-end electronic subcomponents that go into that. What China does is they negotiate a, a, a bulk price for those subcomponents with U.S. manufacturers. So they ship them over in, in, uh, in bulk. They make them into iPhones. They ship them back. And if you're going to try to do manufacturing in the U.S. and you go to that subcomponent supplier and you say, I want to buy it at the same price that you're selling to China, you can't do it. And so that's, that's part of the reason that your board, your PCB that you end up making here is more expensive. But if you can get those subcomponents at an equal price, what people, some people do is go to China to buy the subcomponents that were made in the U.S., shipped to China because they were bought, sold at a low price. They buy them in China and bring them back. I did something very similar. You know, I bought a, um, I bought a DVD player back in 2002 uh, from Walmart and I brought it back to China and I gave it to my driver because if he would have wanted, if he had bought that DVD player, he would have paid twice in China. And it was because China wanted to, you know, get that foreign reserve. And so in a lot of ways, when you look down into how things are done in terms of the supply chain and, and, and why things are you know, price more than they are, and what is the real price that you would pay if you manufactured something in the United States? There's a lot of mythology that goes into it, and it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's a way to cut off the, the argument without going any further. I more than anything, in my opinion, that that explains a lot. I've always been curious about this, so so thank you. Um, you know, in the book, you mentioned how uh, over the past few years, there's been over hundred or hundreds of instances of Chinese cyber warfare or cyber attacks against American corporations. And I think all of this is almost like kind of, we all sort of, again, sort of know this, but why doesn't anybody, why doesn't the federal government say something or, or do something about this? Like, I feel like the official relationship between China and, and us always verges on the, the kind of slightly negative, but friendly level as opposed to really calling them out on whether it's cyber warfare or patent infringement. Like, why don't we just say, well, you can't do this anymore? Well, you know, so th this unrestrained capitalism uh, leads to systemic behavior that we consider to be, uh, you know, abnormal, right? We don't, we don't consider, you know, that our, we don't have to worry, for example, that our pharmaceutical factories, to the extent that we have them here in the U.S., we don't have, you know, very many, um, most of it's in China, but to the extent we have them, we don't have to worry about those pharmaceutical companies, you know, basically making fentanyl and selling it on the street because we have laws and people typically follow laws. It is an aberration for somebody to break the law for a factory owner to basically pump out fentanyl in the U.S. would be an aberration. And so we created a system of rule of law that is designed to deal with aberration. When the system is, when it's a, a, a systemic problem, that's when we run into an issue. So whether it's, you know, the idea of fentanyl or whether it's, you know, the idea of any other systemic problem, the way we deal with it, like cyber, like cyber intrusions, the way we do it with it is it's an aberration and therefore, you know, we, it becomes a law enforcement issue. But when we're talking about it, it's a systemic way and it's a way for the Chinese to attack us. 
and we don't think in those terms, then law enforcement was not built to fight an enemy. It was built to catch a criminal. And that's the way law enforcement officials here in the United States thinks. And I, and I, and I kind of, I have to have an analogy because this is a way that, the way, the best way that I can explain it. Say that you're tasked by your father to go out in the backyard and get rid of an anthill because, you know, it's invading the backyard. And you go out and your strategy is to set up a, you know, an ambush where you see the ants going by and each ant goes by and you, you kill the ants. And your father comes back in a couple of hours and said, how effective have you been? And your answer is, well, I've been 100% effective. I've killed every ant that's gone past this ambush point. But did you get rid of the anthill? No. And it's just this idea of looking at this as an, an aberration that we have to treat as a law enforcement thing, rather than bringing in the folks that are supposed to deal with enemies and dealing with it on a systemic basis. And so how do you deal with something like fentanyl? Well, you can say that if we get another fentanyl shipment into the United States, the next one that comes in, we are going to cut off every single port to a Chinese ship until that ends. And we're just going to turn it around. Now, what would happen? Well, what would happen is the U.S. companies that were importing that stuff would start to complain to the government. You could get China to stop sending fentanyl to us, but you would basically have to make it so painful to China that for them to do it. They would have to see that that it was better for them to cut off fentanyl because they would be able to continue trade. But that's not the way we think about it. We think that, you know, it, fentanyl should be a law enforcement issue. The same thing with cyber warfare. We could say as long as we get attack, attacked from IP addresses in China, if that doesn't stop, all financial transactions with U.S. banks will stop. If it stops, then we'll maintain financial transactions. So the U.S. has the tools to get the Chinese Communist Party to stop attacking them. But it doesn't look at the Chinese Communist Party as an enemy like the Chinese Communist Party looks at the U.S. And so all of these different things, you have law enforcement. And quite frankly, law enforcement is designed for the aberration. What you're talking about here is systemic. You have to have a force that is designed to protect you know, a systemic attack. And, and, and that's not what, what we've designed um, the law enforcement um, system in, in our society to, 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 to deal with. And so when, even when you talk to a law enforcement person that has a very, you know, they're patriotic, they believe in the country, they want to protect the society, they can't think in the terms that I'm talking about because that is not the way they're trained. They're trained, as, they're trained to think that, you know, most people are good for the most part, and there's just some bad people and we got to go catch the bad people, we'll put them in jail and then everything will be fine. You're dealing with a, a a criminal organization here, and not and criminal in the sense that anything goes as long as it meets the, the national interest of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's the way you have to think. And if you can't think that way, then you can't. Then that answers your question: Why are we not doing anything about it? Because we don't see cyber warfare, we don't see fentanyl as a systemic attack. We see it as an aberration. And that's behavior for law enforcement, and law enforcement, quite frankly, do not have the resources to go after it. And I guess this thing could escalate in ways that don't have anything to do with military. So, for instance, if we say no more bank transactions for you, 
I guess the, you mentioned pharmaceutical earlier. I guess the Chinese government could say, okay, no more medicine for you because <laughs> they make all of our medicines, right? Like this was a big issue in the, in 2020 is that when their factories closed, we couldn't get medicines. Like how did we end up outsourcing all our pharmaceutical development to a country that we're not necessarily best friends with? <laughs> well, let, let me, let me give you something a little bit scarier. Why don't, you, this why don't is... you scare me even more than what I just said? <laughs> yeah, because they're putting the melanin in the milk. What do you think they're putting in the pharmaceutical stuff, right? Well, well so, so the scary thing now is, if have you been watching what's been going on in Russia and Ukraine? We've destroyed the Russian economy, destroyed it. So what China is witnessing now, they're learning how we've destroyed the Russian economy. And what they're doing now, is creating the mechanisms to protect their economy from something like that. Here's the problem, and it's, it's related to what you just said. They, we, we talk about the West decoupling with China. China's decoupling with the West. They're slowly, you know, turning the crank on this ability to protect themselves from economic and financial attack because China is creating all these financial connections where they can use their RMB. And what they're going to be able to do using Russia, Iran, North Korea, the Belt and Road Initiative and countries that they're doing business with, they're going to create this system you know, around their own currency, around their own trade, whereby once they do something where we want to punish them, like Taiwan, what's going to happen is we're going to have very little ability to hurt the Chinese economy because they'll have created the defenses that they need. The corollary is they will have all the productivity. So not only will we not be able to do what we've done to Russia, but they will cut us off. They'll cut us off from pharmaceuticals. They'll cut us off from microelectronics. They'll cut us off from all the technology that we need to have anything in the store. So if you think we got a supply chain problem now, what I'm telling you is the Chinese are building the capacity to cut us off completely. And when that happens, it's not going to be a gradual thing. It will be like that. And we have not done the work to move that productive capacity back. So when it happens, it's going to be earth shattering for the United States. And I think that's really what I'm, what I'm terrified of. If you looked at what happened in, in the Cold War, the Soviet Union just went broke. And people were starving. They couldn't drive, had, didn't have gas for cars. That, China learned from that. And they said, that is not, we don't need to go to war. That is our model. We need to starve them. And we need to create the way that, so that we have the productive capacity, so that we have their financial and economic and trade relations with those countries we want to do business with. So that when the United States tries to pull something like we did with Russia and Ukraine, they are going to, they're the ones that are going to starve. So I think that's the, that's the thing that, that, that we need to understand that's going on right now, right in front of our eyes that we're not paying attention to. And so what's a positive outcome? Like what, what could happen that stops this trend? Uh, well, I mean, you could see a change in, in the leadership of China, but I mean, that, it is impossible. I mean, if you talk to an average Chinese, they love the Chinese Communist Party. What? What are they? Why, why would they not? They have a job. Their their kids can go to school. You know, they see um, they see that you know the the society is growing, and you know there's 
There's, there's, you, you know, you don't have high unemployment. You don't have high crime. There's no fentanyl being sold in China. It's only being sold outside of China because any factory owner knows if they sell fentanyl in China, they're going to be executed. So, I mean, it, it is, um, it is very much a belief that this system is better. And in fact, it's so much. It's thought to be so much better that not only do people in China think the system is better, now we're starting to think the system is better. How many people? Do you know um, that have that are leaders of countries? Uh, I'll give you one. Justin Trudeau believes that the Chinese system is much better than our system because you can get a lot more done for the society, right? Because by being able to have total dictatorial control of your population, you can you can do better for them, and that is starting to seep into um, democracies around the world. And so, it could be the fact that you know we won't even. We won't even raise an eyebrow when China invades Taiwan because we will be so kind of、um, in agreement with that system. And so, what could potentially happen? Like China invades Taiwan, which is of course parallels Russia invading Ukraine. What do you think the world response will be?、Uh, well, I think it. I think in the, in the beginning,、um, it could be very similar to Russia and Ukraine. Um, but the you know very quickly you're going to realize how you, how do you sustain that? Like you can't sustain that against China because they own the supply chain for the world.、Um, you might say, well, we'll cut in you know Chinese、uh, the Chinese off from from energy or resources. Well, they built the Belt and Road Initiative to give them access to energy and resources and food. And that's and, in Africa. Suspect- just to describe the Belt and Road Initiative, they China basically went in. With perceived generosity, and said, "We'll build all your roads and fix all your roads and infrastructure in trade for natural resources." Is is that what you're referring to with that? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes beyond that. So they've actually that started with roads,、um, and not really roads. It started with resources. I need a mine. I need a. I need.、Um, I need some kind of material resource. Um, like、uh, cobalt for for、um, uh, lithium-ion batteries for cars comes out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. I got to create a mine there, and I and then I need to get that resource. To, so I need a port on、uh, in in some other country, and then I need to connect them with a the road and rail and fiber and power and water. And you know what comes next? Manufacturing, low-value added manufacturing. That's what I found when I was in the White House in 2017. The highest in,、uh, rate of investment in, in Africa at the time from China was from textiles, shoes, clothes, things that、uh, were high in labor content. They were actually moving that、uh, some, a lot of that to、um, to Africa, along with、um, a lot of Chinese people. So now you're creating this. This ability to have manufacturing in these countries that were previously just agrarian societies. After manufacturing comes urbanization, right? And then what comes is you've created all this system for an ability to hand smartphones to the population at very low cost. And now you have a population that's kind of wedded with your digital. Um, uh, digital um, currency with your all of your、um, tech companies and social media companies and ability to sell e-commerce into that. 
Um, and you're getting intermarriage um, between, you know, the Chinese, the young males, if you have excess of young males in China who've moved in and they're move, uh, marrying, intermarrying uh, with this population. So the Belt and Road Initiative is more than just getting resources or creating markets. It's creating societies that function in a very similar way to China and are very beholden. Those people that are there now are very beholden to China. And so now you create the system that is um, not like the Soviet Union in many ways, but in many ways is like that in terms of there's a there's a coherent way that the society should be, uh, you know, it should be top down um, and it should be oriented and controlled, particularly controlled using this sur- this uh, digital surveillance state apparatus. You know, you've created the, the ability to go from very quickly from an agrarian society to an industrialized society to an information based society that's you know, that gives you IT-based authoritarianism. So that Belt and Road Initiative is far more. And if you look at the Marshall Plan, it was exact opposite. It's how do we how do we grow the uh, productive capacity of Europe back, but how do we also grow the institutions, um, uh, a rule of law, you know, you know, um, civil liberties, human rights, um, free trade. How do we create those those institutions within those societies that that ensure that the respect for individual liberty is going to be maintained? That's what we did after the end of World War II. What China is doing now after the end of the Cold War is reversing that flow. And and they're using the same kind of tools of economic development to help them shape the the social and political um, features of the nations of the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's going to be a very authoritarian system. And for the most part, human nature is if I've got a job – if I, my kids are well taken care of, if I have services, I'm not going to care about the political system is when we have this, you know, this like Gini coefficient that's out of whack. Um, the, West, the, 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 the elites um, don't really have anybody to stop them and they get, they're getting more and more rich and the poor are getting poorer and poorer. That's when you have civil, you know, societal collapse. And all the Chinese are basically saying we can use um, you know, the, the, the automated, you know, systems of the state to maintain this, you know, distance and not let, let it get to a point where it becomes a, a, a problem for society. And then we can, we can basically, we can create this model and perpetuate it around the nations of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so the question is then, why didn't the U.S. do this? Like, Essentially, it sounds like China is helping Africa quite a bit. Like you say, it's giving people jobs. Their their mm-hmm. families are getting more stable. They're going to have urbanization. They're going to have cheap iPhones. They're going to they're going to grow as countries and be part of the world economy. And at the same time, they're going to be they're going to owe China in one way or the other, and that's going to help China's overall goal of domination. But what? But they are helping Africa, in it seems, in this way. Why didn't the U.S. go in and do this? Well, that's just it. Um, you know. Uh, in, in many ways, that's what we were doing, you know, um, with the Marshall Plan. You're right. We stopped. We didn't we didn't continue. And, and in some ways, the end of the Cold War created this um, this 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 impetus to say, hey, we're going to collect on the peace dividend. You know, we were we were contesting the Soviet Union everywhere. Um, we did it primarily through economic, but we were also so, you know, to answer your question, I think there was this. um there was this um, maybe thought that you know we we had we had done enough and we didn't need to do anymore. 
I quite frankly, um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the end of the cold war. I entered the military after the cold war ended. And, um, so looking back, you know, I think there was just this idea that we had won. We don't need to keep doing this. We don't need to keep building up other societies. And we have a, we have a, um, we have a, um, a view in kind of um, environmental um, preservation and, and, and social, um, you know, and uplifting people. But that's more of a, that's more of a, um, um, a it comes from individual donations, it doesn't come from the government. Just in the Cold War, it was a means for us to compete against the Soviet Union. It was creating these pockets of democracy where people could look and say, hey, these these this society is, you know, Berlin, a good example, West Berlin, East Berlin, uh, West Germany, East Germany. I can look across and I can see, hey, the West Germans are doing a lot better than the East Germans. It became this way that we that it was ideological struggle that said, hey, if you're if your society is arranged this way, you guys will do better. And um, and this became the impetus that through which we spoke to the people in addition to things like Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia and Voice of America about, hey, the difference of the system and ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think, you know, in many ways, we just stopped. We stopped. We even got rid of those um, mechanisms, you know, the U.S. Information Agency. People, you know, call it the propaganda agency. Actually, it was the anti-propaganda agency. Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, Radio Free Asia was under the U.S. Information Agency, which was, you know, dedicated to public diplomacy. What were we talking about? Individual liberty, rule of law, rule of law, human rights, civil liberties, free trade, all of these principles of the West that enabled the prosperity of our population. And then we, we talked about that, and that became that in addition to seeing the actual difference. Like when, when, when Deng Xiaoping came to the U.S. and and those people in China that saw the, the the videos of him going to the supermarket and and seeing, you know, they were taught that the United States was a dump. And then they, you know, they see all these pictures like, wait, we, so in, in, in many ways, it became this difference in productivity became the way that we won the, um, won the Cold War. And when we won the Cold War, no reason to do it anymore. And then, so it's a peace dividend. So let everybody just get rich. And in getting rich, we stopped promoting. And I think, I think FDR and Winston Churchill, you know, very, very deep down believe that if we didn't continue to promote these principles uh, in the international order, that, you know, we would, we would in ourselves at, at some point come under threat. And I think all the people that grew up in that world that, you know, fought in World War II, that struggled in the Cold War, that struggled against tyranny, they all got old, died, retired, and we didn't believe we had to do it anymore. And so, you know, to answer your question, why we did do it, we were successful at it. We were so successful that we that we defeated the Soviet Union. And then we just, you know, we went home and, uh, you, know, you know, we uh, put our foot up and started to smoke a lucky, I guess. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading 
K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I wanted to ask you about COVID. So not the arguments about was this warfare, was it manufactured, all, all that kind of stuff. But you mentioned something in the book about how through propaganda, they sort of influenced our policy in terms of masks. And, and you compare that to in Taiwan, which is right next to China, was just as equally affected by COVID as anybody else. And they didn't have a mask policy. They sort of trusted its citizens to decide what was best. But how did how did the U.S. get affected by the, the Chinese in terms of our policies against COVID? So um, I attribute, you know, a lot of what I learned about what happened in the COVID um, to people that I would call non-traditional journalists. I think there's a, there's a great one 
that wrote a book um, called Michael, his name's Michael Singer. He's actually a tax attorney, young tax attorney. And uh, he started, you know, seeing a lot of these things. So I, I intuitively understood what was going on, but I didn't understand the level. So I, I knew that China had infiltrated the corporate sector. I knew they'd infiltrated Wall Street. I knew they um, they were um, involved in our political system and our academic system. What I didn't understand was, and I knew that they were manufacturing most of pharmaceuticals. But what I didn't understand is the, the level of infiltration of the medical, you know, po- what I would call the medical policy establishment, the World uh, Health Organization, the uh, the CDC, um, and 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 so what happened basically is this. The, the Imperial College of London, um, I did not know that in 2015, Xi Jinping, on a four-day trip to the UK, visited the Imperial College of London. I also did not know that millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, had gone from China into the Imperial College of London. What I did know, um, and then this was when the, when the model came out, the epidemiology models that came out of the Imperial College of London, um, what I did know, you know, I'm an, I'm an economist at, by, by training. Um, I looked at the numbers coming out of um, Italy. Um, I didn't trust the numbers coming out of China, but I did, tr- I did look at the numbers coming out of Italy. And I looked at the epidemiology model that the Imperial College of London had put together. And I said, I said this is biased. It's completely biased. There is no way, and if you may remember, they said, you're going to lose over 2 million Americans uh, due to the coronavirus. I looked, the rates were not, that was coming out of uh, Italy was not that high. And I said, this is a very biased model. And as you know, um, economic models or epidemiology models, they're just models. They're, they're, they're something that we can use to predict where we think the world will go. But then when you get a model, you have to go and do the empirical research to say, did the numbers that go into this model actually make sense or do they need to be revised based on what I've observed. What happened, you know, coming out of Imperial College of London consistently was that those models never got revised. And and there was this fundamental belief that all of these people were going to die. And so I, but I did not, the, the part of that story that I didn't know, I knew the model was biased, but I didn't understand that the Imperial College of London had this close connection to the Chinese Communist Party. The other thing that I did recognize is that these videos coming out of Wuhan were suspicious of people just falling down. Okay, so what's going on? What is happening? What is the way to take over and and create, you know, um, to enable you to take control of a population? You have to get them afraid of something. And so there there was this definitive um, hyping of the danger of the coronavirus through that model and others like it and the videos coming out of Wuhan of people just dropping like flies. Then um, what the Chinese Communist Party did in Wuhan is implement lockdowns, okay? If you go back to the very beginning of the lockdowns, the, both the CDC and the WHO said this is, this is, this is not in our pandemic playbook. Within weeks, within just a couple of weeks of the lockdown, the Chinese said, hey, our numbers have stabilized. And if you go look at today, 
the, the, the numbers coming out of China is that for a, one, a population of $1.4 billion, we only lost 4,600 people to, to um, coronavirus. They st after ap April, they stopped counting. But the World Health Organization, the CDC, said the reason that they've only had 4,600 deaths, right, it, it has no, it, you can't compare it to any data model in any country in the world. Doesn't match. The reason that, that they have that only 4,600 deaths because they stopped can, counting after April is because of the lockdowns. So what had happened? We started doing lockdowns in, in, in the West. And what happened? What happened is, a, is what we expected to happen, collapse of the economies, you know, and all the other second and third order effects of depression and all of the things that you see, associated things you see with, you know, social cohesion begin to fall apart. And, you know, at the same time, a strengthening of the ownership of the supply chain in China because they kept, they kept the supply chain going. They provided the PPE. They provided the mask. And so what I didn't understand and it, it didn't become, you know, apparent to me until after the coronavirus was that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party used this hyping of fear for the coronavirus to basically get medical policies that supported and essentially preserved those that kind of system of authoritarianism for two years. And in many places, it's still going on where the government say, I'm going to force you to lock down. I'm going to force you to do these things and I'm going to do it for your own good. And, and for the most part, the populations unanimously, unanimously almost, you know, I think the only one was Sweden, basically accepted it and, uh, and never pushed back. And so, you know, that's the piece that I think the coronavirus is really interesting from a social experiment um, uh, standpoint. The, <laughs> the, the cool thing, you know, for military strategists is the, the, the two PLA colonels wrote about this in their book. They talked about this combination of things, this combination of, you know, I'm not saying that, that coronaviruses, I'm not making a statement about coronavirus as a bioweapon, but it was, you know, a biological thing. And how do you use that? And you couple that with psychological and, and trade, and you have these additions or combinations of different things. How do you create momentum in your favor? That's what unrestricted warfare is all about. It's, it's there in the book, and they talk about it. This is just the first time that's been able to be implemented on a widespread basis. One of the reasons is because of globalization and the internet. We're so connected that we can we can establish we the Chinese Communist Party can help establish a global narrative that carries through to democracies, you know, almost universally without having any way to. And if anybody's, you know, anybody said, "Hey, we this is a problem. This is this is not the, the data doesn't make sense," you know you're shouted down. You're, you're basically said, you know, you're told to, um, you're, you're, you're crazy or you shouldn't be talking. And, and this is, this is also how things work in China. So what I'm saying is the coronavirus enabled this ability to spread a system beyond China's borders that actually in many ways mirrored China's system. And it was done because of, you know, the fear that surrounded coronavirus. And that fear was created purposefully, for that purpose. Now, given the ramifications of, of COVID on our supply system because of, because of this relationship with China that we have where we've outsourced everything, do you think co companies, 
and countries have wisened up and said, hey, we need a plan B. Let's move some of our production to India or Malaysia or Vietnam or wherever. Like, because I think we all woke up and said, oh my gosh, everything we use is made in China. <laughs> like everything well, became a problem. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, no, not at all. Not until the Russians invaded Ukraine. When the Russians invaded Ukraine and the Chinese didn't come out and, um, and, and basically condemn the Russians, they don't even say it's war or an invasion. Uh, they also blame it on the U.S., you know, both to their population and abroad. When I think and when invest and this is in investors, investors saw that and they're like, OK, I saw what's happened to my investments in Russia. I don't want to happen to that, that to happen to my investments in China. I need to be out in China. But that's only some of them. Um, that so for the first time, foreign direct investment is flowing out. So that that money is starting to flow out of China, and I think so. It wasn't the coronavirus, though. It was a Russian invasion of Ukraine that prompted people to see, okay, maybe I really need to take this great power competition that that we've been talking about seriously because I just saw what happened to my um, my investments in Russia that you know. Are, they're they're probably going to be worthless and so um but i think what the chinese are trying to do is walk this fine line of we're not going to criticize russia but we're also not going to support them meaning you know it gives uh, it gives currency to those who would say well you know china would never do what russia did and and, and by the way how many people were saying there is no way no way putin is going to invade ukraine and i was saying he absolutely is going to invade Ukraine. That's what's going to happen. And, and yet there is always this group that says, no, no, everything's going to be fine. You know, I, actually, let's invest more money in Russia. That was, that was actually happening, happening prior to the, um, Putin invasion, invading Ukraine. And I think what you'll see is that there will still be some contingent that will say, be saying the same thing right up to the point that China invades Taiwan. You know, and, 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 and then, you know, I, I question our ability to actually do anything about it. So because money has started flowing out now, I do think um, that you're going to start to see um, people moving their productive capacity. I have investors in our company that have told me other companies that they have invested in they had a product that they could not bring to market because the supply chain was in China. So, I, you know, I think what that tells me is if investors are going to pull their money, that means you're going to start to see the supply chain move outside of China. So, but the emphasis with, for that was not COVID. It was, um, in my mind, really uh, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine. So, you know, and this is, this is not related to China, although it is, and I'll, I'll bridge the gap, but what do you think is going to happen? What's your opinion on what's going to happen in Ukraine, Russia? Do you think, I mean, now that Russia seems to be signaling that they messed up a little going for Kiev first, and now they're kind of focusing on Donbass and so on, what do you think is going to happen? First of all, I, I don't think, um, based on the forces that Putin had arrayed and brought in to invade Ukraine, I don't think he was intending to stay because he didn't have enough people. Or he thought that when they invaded, the, the people of Ukraine would support them. That, that could be the case. 
Uh, and, you know, then, you know, his goal was to remove the leadership in Kiev and, um, and maybe have some troops stay, but stay because they were invited to stay by the new leadership in Kiev. Um, so what, what can we expect now? What I think we can expect now is, um, is, you know, not a, um, not maybe a peace, but more of an armistice where um, you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on this side of the line and you're going to stay on that side of the line. Um, and we don't agree that you own um, that side of the line and you're not going to agree that, you, that we own this side of the line, but we're going to stay on our sides because it's in the best interest uh, for both, both sides to stop you know, this very costly conflict. What does that look like? That looks like Korea. So you're going to have basically part of Ukraine that is, you know, aligned with Russia and part of it that is, you know, fully free and Ukrainian. And um, what was Korea kind of the opening salvo for? Well, it was opening salvo for the Cold War. So I think, you know, Cold War II, the first, you know, you know, proxy battle there is was Ukraine. I think it's going to end in a stalemate. It's going to end with a divided territory. And I think this, you know, we've entered this period of long-term competition where nuclear weapons are going to restrain the major powers from going to direct conflict. And so you'll see these areas where we, um, we're going to compete economically and technologically and, um, um, and financially. And then we're going to see these areas where you have these proxy wars that, that, that take place. You're going to see China move into Taiwan. And I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be successful at taking Taiwan. Um, you know, that's, that's what I predict next. And, and, you know, the world's going to be surprised if we don't do the same kind of sanctions or even call for the same kind of sanctions against China that we called for in Russia. How does, how does everybody save face in all of these situations? Like how does the, how does the U S save face if we don't, have the same kind of sanctions against China that we had against Russia. How does Putin save face in this situation? I'm not saying he should. I'm not saying I want him to, but he's obviously thinking about this. How do things calm down a little bit? Because it, I don't see a way out. Well, um, so war doesn't always have to mean that you win. You know, it, it, it's it's a total victory. It can be a partial victory, and in the case of uh, Ukraine, you know, Russia, you know, may gain, you know, a, a bit of prestige by having had the war. And then if they back off um, and, you know, what's going to happen is, well, we, we need to basically, you know, reward Putin for doing the right thing and stopping this war. And so it'll be back to how do we get, you know, reintegrate uh, Russia into the system. But now we've created this divided country on Russia's border. And so in essence, what did what did Russia get out of? Well, they they basically got, you know, territory. Um, so and I think the same thing will happen in, in, in China. They'll take Taiwan and then, you know, there will be some kind of, um, you know, um, negotiation maybe you'll have you know the the government leave in exile maybe they'll be spread around the world and then there'll be an effort to say how do how do we how do we continue to move forward and i think and then we'll say well you know we want to reward she for allowing you know x to happen whether it's people to leave or some concession that she makes and then things begin to to go back to normal and there's always this pressure to, to normalize. And, and what happens is in, in 
Um, you know, and what we saw during the Soviet Union is there's constantly this aggressive, aggressive push to grow the power, to grow the, 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 the scope of that territory. And it, it goes out and it comes in, it goes out and it comes in. And, and to the extent that we allow you know, new concessions to normalize, you're essentially creating this incentive system for it to continue. Um, you know, it's ultimately, if we can't convince the populations of these countries that their system is is not the good best system for them by forcing them to rely on the innovation, technology, talent, and capital of their own systems, which they have not to this point been required to do like we did during the Soviet Union, by cutting them off economically from the West and, and, and the, 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 the productivity that comes from free peoples, then you're going to see them continue to have the, the power to do what they do. And I think that's the thing that we learned during the Soviet Union and applied uh, during the Cold War that we haven't applied now. This, if you feed these authoritarian regimes with the lifeblood of what it means to be a free society, innovation, technology, talent, and capital, they will, they will take it to grow their power. And to the extent that we don't make Russia continue to pay a price, for Putin, and if we don't make Xi pay a price for his invasion of Taiwan, until that such time that that regime is no more, then we will slowly erode the the productivity and vitality of the free world and, and allow the strength of those um, systems to grow. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm almost worried, like right now, Russia and China are talking about how China can buy Russian oil in rubles or yuan or whatever. And uh, it's almost like two sides of the planet are decoupling and we end up in this 1984-esque situation where there's an entire part that's this Russia-China ecosystem and this entire part that's this European-US you know, system. And then in the middle is South America and Africa kind of seeing who they can get from where and everybody's cut off from everybody else. <laughs> And that, that seems like the direction that we're starting to head. That, that that's exactly the direction. And 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 the the funny thing is, you know, I could I could have told you this, you know, seven years ago. That's where this thing is going. And um, but people fight it, you know, because you know I think that um, they want to they don't want to believe that Putin could invade Ukraine, and they don't want to believe that she could invade Taiwan. They want to believe that that would be too, you know, horrible for 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 to contemplate, but. You know, when you're dealing with regimes such as this, such as this, this is you have to deal with them. You know, with their nature, and their nature is control. Their nature is power, um, and anything that could be a threat to that control or power is something to be eliminated. And you know, right now the Chinese um, and the Russians see America and free societies as, you know, threatening their power and control and therefore something to be, you know, um, minimized, if not destroyed. Well, General Spaulding, this has been so enlightening. You've answered a lot of, you answered all my questions, but there were a lot of questions I've had for years that no one could really help me with until now. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I mean, Robin, anything else that struck you that you want to, you lived in China for six years and you saw a lot of these things as well. I did. One thing I wanted to just point out is with Canada is that um, I, I invest in stock. And so I was looking for a pure play in lithium, American Lithium Company. And I know that in Nevada is, is like the largest lithium, you know, find in the world right now. 
And so I looked at all these companies, and they're all Canadian. So I'm like, uh-oh. And I started researching them. And it's interesting how they hide themselves. It's all owned by the Chinese. And the worst part about it is that they even have the water rights to Nevada. So it's like, that it is scary. They're integrating into the society through coming through Canada. So any Canadian company, I could almost promise you, is backed by Chinese money. So that's, you know, it's scary. It could it be why Trudeau me. is so pro their system And right you now. can buy a passport there. I mean, the Chinese, that's what they do, is the wealthy Chinese, they send their wives over, they get the Canadian passports, their, their kids get the passports, the, the husbands, you know, stay in, in China, and they, they filter their money through the wives, and that's what they do. And I know that for a fact, because I have some friends that... I, I highly recommend a book by Sam Cooper. He's an uh, investigative journalist in, in Canada uh, called Willful Blindness. And he talks about the relationship um, in, in, instantiated in China or in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party, the triads out of Hong Kong and the cartels. And it absolutely is, you know, the, the political system in Canada is completely infiltrated. He, he yeah. documents, it's not just... It's not just hearsay. He shows the documentation, names names. And, uh, you know, I, I, I fear that the same thing is going on in the United States, but we haven't had anybody to put the, put the uh, puzzle together so clearly. But, yeah, no, I think um, you're, you're exactly right. It, it, it goes far deeper than anybody's willing to admit. And, unfortunately, you know, we just don't have um, the intestinal fortitude that we did. And, it, and I think it's probably because we don't see ourselves under threat. And when you, when you fight a war in this way and, and, and use the, you know, the everyday as a weapon, it doesn't, your adversary doesn't seem like an adversary. It seems like, you know, at the worst, it's just somebody that's misguided. And, uh, and that's the beauty of um, war without rules. Yeah, and with the lithium, they own most of the lithium in the world, the Chinese do. And now they're coming over to our country and pillaging it, taking our lithium. You know, it's like, why is our government allowing that? I mean, if I can figure that out, why can't our government figure that out? I'm just a, a normal person that I just did a little bit of research. It took me, you know, two hours, and I, and I located all these companies that were bought and— uh, you know, and it all all roads go to China, you know? Yeah, why doesn't why? the U.S. government do something? I mean, something? Look, I mean you have a, to understand the— Like rare earth minerals as well, not just lithium, but like the, all the elements that we need to power our electric grid are either mined in, in China, and that's a well-known fact, like rare China is the biggest source of rare earth minerals, but then things like lithium powers all of our batteries. Uh, what's going to happen there? <laughs> So, I mean, there's so many um, parts to the story. One is that, you know, the United States or the, the Chinese have, you know, basically put on retainer all the top law firms in the U.S., uh, all the lobbying firms in D.C. And then finally, rare earth metals, um, the problem is not mining them, it is processing them. And the environmentalists don't want us processing rare earth metals in the United States. And so, you know, therefore, we just basically don't do anything about it. And it can't get through Congress. And everybody sees it. Everybody knows you can't make a jet engine blade without for, for a fourth generation fighter, fifth generation fighter without rare earth uh, materials. But we're not we're just not going to do anything about it. And that's why, again, I think it's 
I tell people this is the most existential threat to democracy, not America, just democracy that, that's ever occurred because it uses the worst things of humanity, and that is greed and fear. And if you can harness greed and fear uh, for your strategy, I mean, this is, this is nirvana. Well, let's hope for the best and be aware of the worst, but I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty scary. And, uh, yeah. well, when, when China invades Taiwan and let's hope it doesn't, but when it does, you should come on again and, uh, and we'll figure out what's going to happen then. I absolutely will. Assuming we have electricity and the internet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Uh, hopefully we can assume that, but we'll see. Otherwise, I'll just come and visit you, and we can just talk about yeah. it. <laughs> Where are you based right now? I, I'm I'm in uh, I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. So oh, okay, yeah. Um, well, General Robert Spaulding, War Without Rules: China's Playbook for Global Domination, and author of also Stealth War, which I should recommend. Um, I forgot the subtitle of that. How China took took over while America's elite slept. Yes, yes. Oh, that's the that is a true statement. <laughs> And so thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast and answering our questions. And hopefully we don't talk to you that soon, but we're probably going to talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.